And welcome everybody to another episode of The Full Life. Today, we're talking about the future of the church and how we can continue to effectively communicate the good news and truth of God. Stay tuned. Different Christian perspectives coming together to have important conversations about our faith and help you live in the fullness of life God wants for you each and every day. This is The Full Life with Joseph Mancuso. Carolyn Pankella, Hank Johnson, and Jenny Stivale. Come join the conversation. Yes, just as the opening says, we are the full life. This is the show that wants you to be living in the abundant life God has for you. And we do that by asking questions, by refining our faith, by deepening our faith. By, by talking and discussion and by welcoming guests on to discuss issues of faith and culture so that we may all be a greater community of God to the world. And today will be no different. We have a great topic to discuss. But first, we, of course, invite you to follow us on social media, whether it be through Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, or our audio podcast version. And of course, we start every show off with an encouraging word, and today's will come from Jenny. Well, Full Life family, I am honored to come and give you the encouraging word today. And the encouraging word is truly coming from my spirit, because uh, we are pastors of a church, as many of you know, in Los Angeles area, actually now in Pasadena, called King of Kings Community Los Angeles. And we have been believing for the impossible for quite some time, for about six months, we've been believing for the impossible. God put on our hearts a building in the center of Pasadena. It's a historic a historic theater that's been around for a hundred years and it's been empty for 20 years. All kinds of people have tried to possess this building. Uh, uh, Debbie, uh, Debbie Reynolds tried to, David Lee Roth. I mean, people fought to try to get this building and because of just a long story, nobody has been able to occupy this space. And God told us this was our space. It was being held for us. Well, this is almost impossible because what they wanted in rent was like a, an impossible number. Let me just say that. I'll just say an impossible number. But we know that with God, all things are possible. So we moved out of the church building we were in. We moved to a park across the street and we began to take territory. And recently God put on my heart the book of Joshua. And we took a, a took about the, the month of May to look into the book of Joshua and look at what God told the people to do in order to prepare to take the impossible, which was Jericho. This was a strong city. This was a stronghold. And so God put that on our heart. And so we began to study these few things. And I'm just going to share these quick points for you and then end with a really exciting thing. The Lord told us, first of all, to be strong because in Joshua chapter two or chapter one, the very first thing that God says to, uh, to Joshua over and over again is be strong be of good courage, be strong, be of good courage. Then he says, be very, very strong. Now here, here's the deal, guys. You don't tell someone to be strong if they're going to the movies or if they're going to a park or if they're going to do something fun. You don't say, be strong. You can do, you say, be strong when there's something very big ahead of you. So we have to remember, if we want to accomplish big things for God, we got to be strong. It's going to be hard sometimes. So we got to be strong, but we also got to be systematic. We got to be systematic and strategic. We got to look, Joshua sent spies into the land ahead of them to check it out. We got to remember strategy. We got to remember to be systematic. We need to be sanctified, set apart. Uh, but the other thing was to be silent. If you know the story, the, the, the people of Jericho, I mean, sorry, the people of Israel surrounded the city of Jericho and they marched for seven days silently. 
not complaining, not questioning. They might have questioned in their minds, but they didn't put it out there because our tongues are powerful. And, and they were just, they, they just said, you know what? We're just going to just do what we're told to do. And they were silent. And sometimes in our lives, we sabotage stuff because we say too much. I've had that problems many times, many times. We say too much. We doubt. We say something negative. We, we let our tongue control a situation. God's told the people, just be silent be silent. And so we took a look at these strategies and we put them into practice. And I'm very happy to announce to you that we just got word last week or just a couple of days ago that after six months of following this and really standing in faith, the door has opened and King of Kings Community, Los Angeles, little ragtag, brand new church, little group of believers that just stood on faith are going to be occupying the Raymond Theater in the next couple of weeks. Something that big name celebrities couldn't even do because God, with God, all things are possible. So I say that to encourage you today. If you are believing that God has given you something, do not doubt. Do not waver. Don't question it. Don't let your mouth run off. Be sanctified. Be strategic. Be, uh, what did I say before? I said to be strong. Be silent. All right, now that we're encouraged, it's the perfect time to start talking about the future of the church and how we may in turn as the church be encouragement to other people who maybe haven't experienced God's love, truth, and peace in their everyday lives as we have. To help us to talk about this subject are two dynamic guests who have written a book together, and let's introduce them now. For over 25 years, Nancy Beach has served as the programming director for Willow Creek Community Church in suburban Chicago, and then as a teaching pastor. Currently, Nancy is a leadership coach with the Slingshot Group, helping church leaders and teams to flourish in life and ministry. Nancy and her husband, Warren, have two adult daughters, one son-in-law, a granddaughter named Eloise, and a dog named Beanie. And Samantha Beach Kylie is a creative communicator working at the intersection of art and faith. The Kylies are preparing to leave their home in Austin to move to Raleigh, North Carolina, where Sam will join Church on Morgan as an associate pastor. She came to ministry as a theater maker, with her plays being produced in professional and educational settings, and her acting experience including theater, voiceover, work, and television. Best of all, she is married to Will and a mom to six-month-old Eloise. Please welcome Samantha Beach Kylie and her mom, Nancy Beach. Hi. 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 Welcome. Well, thank you again for joining us. I mean, this topic is really at the crux of everything we talk about each and every week here. And it is such an important topic, especially after this pandemic. And we were talking before we got on, you actually started this before the pandemic, but then you finished writing it during the pandemic, a time where everyone in church had to pivot. So I have to ask, what was it? What was it like starting? What was it like finishing the book? And then what was it like writing as a mother and daughter pair? Well, I was asked to speak to a group at the end of 2019, I believe it was, um, a group of Christian publishers about the future of the church. And I thought that was a pretty audacious uh, topic and question mm -hmm. and difficult to answer for sure. Um, but I wrestled with it and put something together. And after that, a couple of the publishers asked, would you ever want to write a book about this? And honestly, I think of myself as kind of a reluctant writer. I had written two other books, but they were uh, long ago and was chatting about it with Samantha. And then I think she had the idea, well, what if we did something together? And that really captivated me because I'm a baby boomer from the baby boomer generation yeah. and she's a millennial. 
And our family talks about church all the time because I was on staff at a church and we love to debrief and evaluate and figure out where the church is headed. And then she started working um, at a church as well. So the conversation has continued and that's really a reflection of, of what we did in the book. Yeah, and, and as you mentioned, Joseph, we started this before the pandemic and then we're plunged into a several year period that we're kind of now still in of the church really having to reevaluate what it means to gather, what it means to be the church, what it means to be local in an age when we can connect with people who are anywhere. And so it was fascinating to write this book. It may, I think what you'll read is a lot of our ongoing challenging of our own convictions um, because of how many questions, I think really good questions came out of the experience we were all forced to have. And um, I really enjoyed getting to write with my mom. We knew from the get that we couldn't be the kind of co-writers who would do, you know, write every sentence together. So the book is uh, a dialogue between, um, we have essays back and forth on the same topics. And that was a strategy that seemed to work for us. It was neat to learn how her thinking on some of this stuff had evolved through her writing and to share with her where I was at as well. So it was a gift to do. But, you know, I think this topic is really timely because I think, I think it's time that we as the Christ child and as the church, because we are the churches, what do we look like going forward? And I'm so glad you're beginning the conversation that everybody can begin to think, because I, I don't think it's going to look the same. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the things that we talk about um, that really challenged me. My mom and I both love the Sunday gathering. We believe that church is seven day a week affair, hopefully, but, um, but we really believe in what happens when we come together on Sunday mornings. And so uh, watching churches pivot and some do it in incredibly innovative ways to reach people um, online was really inspiring. And we also saw the limitations of those kinds of connection points. And I think um I think the digital church will be around forever. I think we now we've seen that some people, that's the only way they can access church or that's the only way they could find a church um, maybe that held some values that were important to them. And so I don't think that will go away. But we started to ask, why would people ever come back now that that's an option? What would make someone want to come back? Is it important that we come back in person? And that takes up a pretty big chunk of the book because she and I both believe so much in what happens when we do gather in our 3D form. That was one of the questions that I wanted to ask you guys is what you see as the plus and minuses of being online. Because, you know, there is pluses to it because you're able obviously to reach people that may never come to a church. But the other thing is, is when people get comfortable to doing church at home, just in their PJs, mm -hmm. and then they're missing that coming together. I, I just would love to hear a little bit more of your thoughts about what the plus and minuses are for it. Yeah, I think. I mean, I think you touched on some of them. Um, from my vantage point, one of the big positives is that um, you know COVID revealed obviously that some of us there were times where people were not well enough to be with other people, and that has actually always been true. There are people with chronic illness who've come forward and said this has helped make things more accessible for me that mm -hmm. I've always needed to be more accessible, and so. I celebrate that. And I think that's part of the reason why I hope that this way of engaging will always be around. Um, and then on the flip side, I think what I struggle with, with engaging in church online is, um, well, for one thing, how easily distractible we are when we have access, right, to the entire world of ideas and people at our fingertips. It's very hard for me to stay present and engage in what could be a, a sacred experience where I'm giving it maybe the reverence that it 
inherently has when we show up in person and you've actually put your clothes on, got in the car, got the whole family to church. I think there's something in that whole process of preparing and going that um, we miss when we can just pop over to some other tab on our computer. I love what you said about um, discipleship being the art of including. Because in my experience, in my time in a local church community, it takes deliberate effort to include, I mean, even in simple things like committees on parties for church, it, you have to make a really thoughtful, concerted effort to include different voices, to accommodate different things, because everyone has a different opinion, even about the parties. So I thought that was a really interesting thought process about how to be uh, or make disciples, because it's really not easy. It's definitely not, Joseph. And I think that that it's one of the primary ways that God does the transformative work inside of us is when we're with people who we may not agree with, um, when we're with people who have a different point of view that makes us stand back and think, oh, I never saw it that way before. Uh, when we're with people who maybe are a different age, a different gender, a different race, a different socioeconomic um, place, a different political party. And uh, I think the best of community is when we intersect all those different groups and we say, wow, what do we have in common and what can we learn from each other? And how can I become more like Jesus by learning how to deal with this mess? Because sometimes it is really messy. One of the, the aspects for me, not just sitting side by side with people, but is also that when we're engaging in something online, I think it's hard to sometimes move from our heads into our hearts and our bodies. Mm-hmm. And I think the, the a Sunday gathering where we are side by side with um, fellow imperfect, but longing to get it to get it better next time, to keep becoming more like Christ when we're alongside those people and we're practicing ritual together, taking communion, using our voices, singing, it just becomes a more embodied experience. And sometimes it can move to the heart level as well. We're used to taking in podcasts and things like that on more of a just purely cerebral level. And I don't know that that's the whole of what the worship experience can be. Well, we keep talking about Sunday and the Sunday gathering, but there's actually a part in your book where you talk about maybe putting less emphasis on Sunday and the gathering. And that is like, what? I mean, isn't it the Sabbath? I'd love for you guys to explain that. Go ahead, Mom. Well, I think um, the gathering uh, is sort of a catalyst and it, it does matter. It's really important. But the church that I'm a part of in Chicago has a saying, they say church is seven days a week, not just one. And it's all about making an impact in our community. And this is where I think Samantha's generation and the one that follows it um, is, is passionately saying, is your church making any difference in the lives of people in the community? Um, If your church disappeared tomorrow, would anybody notice, you know, Um, or is there, an expression of your church that's making a difference with maybe the homeless or with those who are incarcerated or with kids after school, um, with foster kids, with, you know, there's an endless list and no church can do everything, but what are you doing that meets a very real need right in the location where you are? And that is, I think, the cry of the younger generation and really of Samantha's friends who aren't even in church. That's what they want to know. Yes. Yeah. I share about this in the book, but I um, I had a group of friends in, in, when I was living in Chicago who I invited had invited to church before on Sundays, and you know no one took me up on it. And then one Sunday I was um, 
going to, we did, they canceled church and they said, we're all going to go out and serve in the community. And so I was signed up to serve at a homeless shelter. And my group leader texted that morning that we were short volunteers and could anyone bring people along? And I texted this group of friends, about seven of them, an hour before we needed to show up and all seven came. And it was so revealing to me uh, that was actually a much easier invitation than coming through the front door of a church on a Sunday morning. You talk about in the book uh, being missional and what that means. And you talk about this cycle where they can meet Jesus in different places. Um, And one of those may even be like a cause of some sort. Can you explain what being missional is and how they can meet Jesus in different ways? Well, I used to think as a baby boomer, I guess, in a very linear way that there was one way people came to faith and there was step one, step two, step three. And now that I'm older and hopefully a little bit wiser, I see that it's usually a lot messier than that. And there are so many different paths for a person to come to faith in Christ. And sometimes their first experience might very well be serving somewhere. There's so many different pathways to find your way to Christ. Samantha, you talk a lot about the definition of being missional in the book. Can you elaborate further? My friends, the people I know, would also care about the way in which we're serving the disenfranchised and the marginalized and not just that we're showing up for those groups, but that I think there's um, an evolving conversation and we're, we're getting better at listening to voices from those who are impacted in these different areas. But Um, we need to make sure we're being responsive to what they've said their needs are and not just deciding what we think their needs are. Mm. And I think the church has a bit of a history to reckon with there and not always doing that in ways that was culturally sensitive. And so I would just add that 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 deeper level of consideration, relationship building and listening be part of our missional work. I would love to hear you guys just describe what you think the church's what our place is, what are we there for as the church? In Second Corinthians, I think um, Paul talks about how God uses his people to reconcile the world to himself. Like, like, how do we come back to God? And I think God's plan A is through this community of faith that we've come to call the church. Um, and often, because the church doesn't get it right most of, much of the time, I look up to heaven and say, okay, if that's plan A, like what was your plan B? Because we're really, we're really screwing this up. But I think this is plan A. And Mm -hmm. I think the church is the place where if we cooperate with what God's up to and we enter into these communal relationships, we get formed. And that's really God's ultimate plan that you and I would be formed to be more like Jesus. How is that going to happen? Well, probably not all by myself. Um, That's going to happen in the context of a local church. It's also the place where I get to find out that God gave me a gift of some kind and I get to contribute. I get to help advance his kingdom alongside other people, which is deeply fulfilling. And it's what we were made for. Um, It's also a place where I get to have people hold up a mirror to me. And sometimes they're affirming certain things and other times they're saying, hey, you know what? I think you have a bit of a blind spot here. And this is an area where you might need to grow. Um, So all of that can happen in the church. And as Samantha often says, I don't know of any other institution like it. I can't compare it to anything else in our culture and society. And that that is an amazing thing. And again, I know we don't get it right much of the time. But when the church is working right, it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. I think we see most especially from younger generations, this true desire for authenticity 
especially within their church community. And, you know, some of church history has some reckoning to deal with, some things that we didn't do very well. So with those sort of trust issues, this broken trust over time, how do you build um, an authentic uh, relationship of love and trust, welcoming and value for groups that maybe have been excluded? How do we do that? We, we touched on this just before that, that we're starting to listen to the voices of those who our culture has pushed to the outside and historically maybe excluded and oppressed. And I think about the voices of um, folks who uh, are minorities, the folks, the voices of people who um, are LGBTQ people, identifying people um, and the voices of people with disabilities. There's many groups of people who we haven't often seen on stage at our churches. And so as we start to listen to those voices, I think um, there's a growing sense, and we see this happening in other places in our society, that there's some reckoning that we need to do with how power has been distributed uh, historically. And so I think my friends and myself are wanting to see the church engaging in participating in that process. And part of that means looking back at um, how we've contributed to the damage that has been done, how we've actually been complicit in perpetuating systems that have hurt and excluded people um, and naming that, being really clear about confessing and lamenting. I think sometimes the church rushes to reconciliation without doing the work of confession and lament. Um, and, and I think the beauty here is that we don't actually need churches to get up and have this all figured out. I think authenticity is naming, we see that damage has been done and that repair needs to happen. And we wanna be part of that process. And we're trying to figure this out as imperfect people. And we hope you'll help us figure this out as our community and congregation. Um, that's authentic. So so a couple things I wanna talk about here and, and really from the Christian Post to the Southern Baptist to the Catholic Church, there has been numerous scandals about abuse that have happened over the last two decades. And as we just talked about, it really breaks trust. It breaks our credibility. It breaks the credibility of our witness of Jesus Christ. You know, and a lot of it is power-based. You know, so how do we reconcile that? And look, we know the spiritualness of it. We know that we wrestle not against flesh and blood. We know that the devil's at work. But we also know that people have to choose to sin of their own free will, and they have to be accountable for their behavior. So... With that all said, how do we move forward as a church and be now a credible witness to those who have experienced abuse, who those who maybe uh, had it in their family and, and, and now no longer trust the church in this arena? Well, I find it very sad that what began as sort of a Me Too moment, movement eventually evolved and included a Church Too movement where... Uh, the reckoning and wake-up call of sexual abuse and harassment that was happening in many other institutions was really also happening in the church. Mm -hmm. um, sadly, it's nothing new. We know this goes back for, for decades, uh, but I think people have become more aware of it, and there's been an alarming number of moral failures in a variety of denominations and, and places. And I think first and foremost, we need to understand that when victims come forward um, they do so with shaky knees and uh, lots of fear. There's very little to gain usually for these victims. And the first thing we need to do is have a mindset of believing them. Uh, the expert on clergy 
abuse, Diane Langford has done extensive studies and says that in only 8% of these cases, does it turn out that the person was not telling the truth? It's a very low number. And so we need to begin by believing them and initiate a truly independent investigation. And that's the key word, independent, out from outside the church to come in and look at the allegations and really listen well and figure out what, what has happened. And then at that point, we enter into what Samantha has been talking about, this season of lament and confession and making it right, um, which cannot be rushed. It's very, very important um, that, we, that we have healing, and that can only come through confession and, and lament and making things better. Uh, the other thing we've revealed, though, is it's not just sexual abuse, but it's also the abuse of power. And sadly, uh, our churches, no matter what size I've learned, even small churches, can breed a celebrity culture uh, these days. Uh, The pulpit is a dangerous place. It can breed sins like narcissism. And uh, pastors who think that they're the exception and somehow entitled to different kinds of behavior than all the rest of God's people, and that couldn't be further from the truth. And so we need to build places where we actually have the humility of sharing the pulpit and where we have true accountability and people holding up mirrors to these dynamic charismatic leaders who need someone to speak truth um, into their hearts and lives. Mm -hmm. And also I take ownership um, in my situation when I was in a place that had kind of celebrity culture, I realized later that I was in that inner circle and I was complicit in some way. We can be complicit in propping up these celebrities because maybe there's some way that their refracted light benefits us. And I had to Mm -hmm. confess that and admit that maybe I wasn't willing to speak enough truth soon enough um, just because I had a good situation going on. And uh, that's awful. That's called sin. And so that was, that was a big part of my awakening. I think we need to have elders and staff members and people in these inner circles yeah. take a look at whether they're willing to speak truth. You know, the Bible says in the, mm-hmm. in second Timothy, it says in the last days that we will be lovers of money, we'll be lovers of ourselves and lovers of pleasure. And, you know, just in my prayer time the other day, you know, I just was like, God has the church taken on the world's philosophy and mask it with Jesus. And, mm-hmm. and I'm so glad to hear you say that because, you know, I was mm-hmm. reading something the other day that said back in the old days, the pulpit was not in the center. It was actually the place that you took communion. And I don't think it's just Samantha's generation. I think it's my generation who is really asking for the church to step back up and leave the way of the world. The world, the world's way, we've all tried it. We, we tried the world to find our happiness through money, through power, through positioning, through all these things, through pleasures, only to be found empty. And I think that's why when you hear Samantha talking about this next generation that just wants to get out and make a difference, I think it's because this next generation realizes that that is what happiness and joy is all about. And so, you know, my whole prayer Mm -hmm. is that the church, I think it has to wake up and the pulpit has to begin. And I call it that because I'm old fashioned, but I think the people in leadership have got to begin to take that stance of we are here to be Christ's servants and it's not about us. And really, if I'm looking to get any glory onto myself, 
I need to go and repent somewhere because the glory is supposed to only be going to him. And so Mm -hmm. I'd love to hear you guys' thoughts on that. And I know Samantha, I see her shaking her head a lot. So I don't know. (laughs) I I agree, Carolyn. I think, um, and I don't, this is where I do not think that social media and online church has really helped us because um, I I do think we're, we're, it's a, become a cult of personality in some churches uh, when we're hearing from the same usually man every Sunday and that has become and we're just consuming that content and that one way of experiencing God and he becomes an idol of sorts and I think I do think it's unhealthy and I think um, there's a lot of people who are complicit in that I think we help support that um, when we prop those people up and I think um, leadership supports that when there's not a system of checks and balances mm-hmm. and the church structure and systems support that when there's not a diversity of voices. And so mm-hmm. um, I agree. I think it's a huge, you know, there's an Instagram account called preacher sneakers where young yes. people are posting. I don't know if you've seen this um, <laughs> pictures of these gym shoes that pastors are wearing that cost thousands of dollars. That's yes. not a great look, you know, no. like, yeah. and that, that <laughs> is everywhere. And so I think we got to interrogate. Um, where, yeah, where we're placing our value. I wanted to bring up purity culture because I I think purity culture in its essence is great. I think that we should be um, honoring and protecting the beautiful connection that is the intimacy between spouses. I think that is a sacred thing that is very godly and a noble goal to attain. I just am always the critic of how we have been teaching this over the years. I think we've done it in such a way that there's a lot of shame involved and there's this, you're not able to sort of own this part of yourself and then choose not to participate. Um, And so I would love your thoughts because I think where we're going is ultimately really good. I just don't think we've gotten there in a good way yet. This isn't to make light of sexual sin. I think sexual sin is very serious and can be extremely damaging to people. Um, But I also look in the Bible of how much is said about uh, greed, for example, and not caring for the poor um, Mm -hmm. and the lack of justice that's happening and all of that. And somehow all of our focus just keeps going to sexual sin and, and not to pride, which God hates, Ooh. you know? Um, and so I, I would like to see us have a more balanced uh, kind of teaching about all the ways in which we need to conform to the image of Christ, um, all the ways our hearts can change and how easy it is for us to become selfish and self-centered and prideful. Um, uh, humility is one of the greatest marks of a true leader and uh, there just doesn't seem to be enough focus, in my opinion, on those things. You also mentioned shame. And I think in sexual sin, there's so much shame associated with it that we lose the beauty of teaching children about what a beautiful gift sexuality is mm-hmm. and what a wonder it is um, when we get to express it and uh, live out this gift that God decided to give us. He didn't have to do that. If you think about it, it didn't have to be pleasurable. You know, he could have right. made it all very mechanical or something the way we reproduce and all of that. Um, but, but he didn't, he designed it as a gift for us. And I think if we start there with children, instead of starting with all the should nots and all of the rules, um, I think there would be a lot less shame. 
and we'd be seeking the really good and beautiful thing that God intended for it to be. I just feel like so much of the church is is just operated in fear and shame instead of bringing this back to we're moved by God's love and his grace mm-hmm. that causes us to come to repentance, the Bible says. And mm-hmm. I don't know about you, but that's what keeps me like when I sin, it's like, oh man, God, I've hurt you and you are so good. And and mm-hmm. and I agree, Nancy, it's we've got to be talking about all of them. I mean, you mm-hmm. know, gossip, overeating. Yes. I mean, we don't want to talk about those things, but we deal yeah. with them every day. Gossip, that is a huge one I've experienced in church communities that we should really take a little bit more of an examination on. Um, You started to talk about this before, but I did want to bring a further emphasis on God and justice. Um, I think I have seen now, really, through a lot of this show, the beautiful different sides of God, God as a merciful and loving God, and a God of freedom, but also God of justice and a God of righteousness. Uh, And with regard to justice and all the issues happening around in our world, in our country, in our communities, I think we as the church have kind of sort of divorced ourselves or detached ourselves from this idea of justice in a lot of ways. Like we want God to do the justice and we believe God will do the justice, but we sort of as his emissaries don't really want to do the justice here on earth. So I'm curious about your thoughts about our role uh, in doing justice uh, in the world now. It's so true. I, I often hear quoted in churches that verse, I forget where it is about, you know, in kingdom there will, in the kingdom of God, there will be no divisions. You know, it, will people of all races that will stand alongside each other and worship God together. And, and it's true. I believe that. And, but I don't think we can use that as like, and so we'll just wait for heaven and then it'll be great. I think we, the world won't, take us seriously. And we don't want to live in a world where these divisions exist now. And I think that, um, gosh, the more digging I've done into my own, there's many areas of justice, but in particular into my own um, anti-racism journey and un- and starting to peel back the layers of how uh, my whiteness has privileged me and blinded me and um, helped and made me perpetuate um, with racist structures. Um, gosh, that's sacred work. I mean, I just think the church, I, I think a lot of my friends are doing that work and wanting a place where we can confess those things, where we can work them out in community and where we can um, begin to build a better way and enter a process of repair and justice work. And so I would just love to see the church um, be a place that where that's really matters, that's foundational. Um, and we know the church as a fiercely anti-racist institution. And that work again is gonna start with going back and looking at how in particular the white American church has contributed to some of the division that exists now and has has collaborated with racism in the past. And so that's gonna be part of that work to move forward. But I, I, I agree with you, Joseph, I think that that burden of work is upon us now. Yeah, I agree with you because I've experienced a lot of defensiveness of when people say, no, I'm not a racist. And you know what? You probably aren't consciously. And I agree with you that you don't have an overt um, uh, discrimination against people of any colors. A lot of people fall into this category. But I, in my personal journey, can say that I didn't know what I didn't know. I didn't know necessarily that things that I just took for granted 
were potentially perpetuating things that disadvantaged others. Um, so I, I really encourage just this uh, stance of humility and listening because I, I think that even in of itself goes such a long way. And then from that stance, when you can go, oh, well, I can see how this might do that. Then from that place, you can hopefully do better and, and do this justice work and hopefully make this earth a little bit more like the kingdom of God. I mean, that's the goal. The last thing I wanted to bring up today is women in the church. And of course, we have three of them here, so it's a perfect thing to discuss. I mean, on this show, we've, we usually have a woman senior pastor join us. We've had many other women pastors and leaders in the church with us. So in this particular space, I think we're fairly comfortable with the idea. But I know that's not always the case for the whole church as a whole. So... I wanted to see what your thoughts were in. Uh, we've talked a lot about the theology, so it's not necessarily the theology, but just what opens hearts and minds to this, or how do we take the next step forward in elevating and affirming the role of women in the church? Well, I think you're right. There's a theological question, and churches are somewhere in a range of you right. know egalitarian versus complementarian, and based on how they interpret certain tricky scriptures. And there's only a few of them, um, but how that gets interpreted. But then there's actually, if I can set the theology aside for just a moment, the actual experience of girls who then become women. And so, for me, when I was growing up, I went to a Protestant church. And I never saw a woman in leadership up front. Um, I never saw a woman teach. I never saw a woman couldn't lead um, in terms of the board at the church. Um, I saw women in the choir, and that was about it. And the male pastors sat on these white chairs, tall white chairs that look like thrones. And they sat in front of the church. And that was my picture. So as I'm growing older in my neighborhood and school, I'm identifying myself increasingly as a leader. I wouldn't have ne necessarily used that word, but I was starting to lead in all these different settings. And I wondered, and this is a moment in my life that I remember when I was about nine or 10 years old, I was standing outside our house and seeing my mom, who was a full-time homemaker in the house. And I remember thinking, was there a mistake made in heaven when the gifts were distributed and, you know, and I was a girl baby? Like, is there something wrong with me that I have this gift? Because I don't see it in a lot of other girls. And also wow. um, in my church, I couldn't, couldn't even imagine ever leading in the church. And oh, it took me a long journey to understand, no, you, there was no mistake. God gave you, God gave you that gift. And in Corinthians, we learned that gifts were distributed just as the spirit desired is the way it, it's expressed. Um, so we have all these girl babies, let's call them, who are becoming women who have so much to contribute to the kingdom. And I believe that every church, whatever its theology is, should, should op offer opportunities to the highest possible level within their theological framework. Um, that is possible because we can't have half of the kingdom sidelined and not able to flourish. And that's a tragedy. I want to dive in the word for myself and say, what does it look like if I do it like Jesus did it? Mm -hmm. He never had a building. I don't know. Right. And I think 
you know, you have a lot of women who were great women back in those days. I mean, go read it. They were tent builders. They were, right. they were important. Yeah. They were important people. And Jesus did not discredit women. I mean, yeah, matter of no. fact, he, I tell women all the time, he freed us. I mean, okay. I'm sorry, I get on this subject and I get all riled huh? up huh? because, you know, it's absolutely I mean, true. In a time where women were no better than a step above animals, Jesus not only spoke to them, but they asked a question for her to speak back. I mean, it's like, come mm-hmm. on, Jesus is the great freer of women. Yeah. Now, am I saying that I don't think that there is, you know, that we need to keep that the man isn't the head of the house. I mean, I think there's laws that God has in there that is just to keep those guardrails. But man, I don't know. You guys got to help me out. Maybe, maybe I'm thinking crazy. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, you're Carolyn, we see it in Jesus for sure. He championed women, I think, in ways that were completely unheard of at the time. And I, I think that's the example we need. And now let's turn to the fullness of prayer. Well, I am in a season where I just had a baby six months ago. And so my beautiful, quiet time that I was so disciplined and read a bit of the Bible and had some contemplative prayer every morning and journaled has just gone away completely because I have a newborn and that's a whole different rhythm. So I would just encourage you if you find yourself in a season where your old tools maybe are out the window and um, you know that 30 or 40 minute window that you used to have is gone. I'm just reawakening to the reminder that God is present always, all throughout the day. And what all that changes is my own awareness. And so I've started finding things that I'm now doing in my new rhythms that can be a reminder to me to invite um, my own awareness of God's presence on a deeper level. And one of those examples is feeding my daughter because I do that like six times a day. And so every time I feed her and she's an easy kind of trigger for this because I look at her face and it's like she just came from union with this divine being that I'm seeking to be in greater union with. And so I I use her face as a, as a call to prayer, honestly. That's my, that's my two cents if you're in a season like me that's just chaotic. Samantha, Nancy, tell us all how everyone can get the book and how they can stay in touch with you either on social media or online. Where should they go? Well, our book is available at major places where books are sold. It's on Amazon. You can order it through. It's published by University Press. You can order it on their website. And my website is samanthabeach.work. And I'm also on Instagram at, at samanthabeachk. And my website is nancylbeach.com. We hope that you all get this book, support Nancy and Samantha, but more importantly, support the church, support this effort to make the church and continue for it to grow into a better and brighter witness to the world that points to Christ. I mean, that's the goal that we all want. We want everyone to be pointing to Christ to that love, to that peace, and that that our church community may be the epitome of this. And to that end, we will continue to try and strive to be that on this show each and every week, a community that continues to point to Christ in a better and brighter way every single episode. So we'll see you next time here for more conversations on The Full Life.